Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast. This is uh, C.R. Wiley, and we are podcasting as we always do from the Corner Pug in West Hartford, Connecticut. And uh, I'm joined by my friends, and they're going to introduce themselves. And so we'll start with you, Glenn, today. Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of European history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And Tom Price, a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And I'm C.R. Wiley, the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester, and I'm glad to be here with my friends as I am every Thursday at 3 o'clock. Every Thursday at 3 o'clock, that's when we record this in the back room of the Corner Pug. And today, this episode is brought to you by Tom Price. It's my day. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yeah, so what are you talking about, Tom? Out of the (laughs) woodshop. Not really. (laughs) Out of the library. Um, today I'm going to hit on a few themes. Um, back to, to the you know, topics of theological analysis of cultural trends. I mean, that's one way of looking at what I'm up to. And uh, the, it, I've got uh, three kind of uh, topic points. One is going to be judgment, Ooh. the second denial, Ooh. and the third indifference. Ah. <laughs> So uh, people tend to like triads in title. So right, right, this, right. This, is, this one's judgment, denial, and indifference. Now I've got to somehow make all of that come together. <laughs> yeah, so right. that, that's my aim. Right. The first thing I want to do is, is this topic of judgment. Um, I've been reading recently um, in preparation for a talk I'm giving, some of the, the, some of the older, when I mean older, I'm just talking 30, 40, 50 year ago older, not centuries, much less, more than that, um, theologians that that were really coming to grips with the full impact of the Enlightenment, the modern world, modernization, increased secularization, and their way of trying to, you know, make sense of the gospel and the gospel's um, relation to all of these changes going on. And uh, one of those figures was uh, Elmut Tilika, name a lot of people don't bring up anymore, although they'll yeah. see kind of once in a while at a used bookshop is <laughs> system, uh, yeah, his evangelical theology. But he has an interesting quote in one of these, um, in his first volume, and where he, he wonders whether the dogma of self-resting finitude is not an expression of this situation of judgment, of God's self-retirement, puts it this way. Might it not be the case, he asks, that the rejection of transcendence in the modern era leads not to a true perception of reality, but rather to the closing off of heaven and the delivering of yeah. humanity to finitude. Right. And what is so a handing us over? A handing us over. So what he what he's sort of saying, and I think he was attuned to this. Um, but if we bring it back to kind of one of the um, high high end points, or one of the high noon points, maybe another way of putting it, of the Enlightenment in the figure of Immanuel Kant. Um, Mm. What happened with Immanuel Kant um, in many ways um, exhibits this great uh, transfer, this moment maybe of of judgment, (laughs) if Mm. you will, Mm. um, at a high intensity point. I'll explain a little more of that, what I mean by that. Before I do, um, I want to reference something uh, the, the famed uh, Iris Murdoch, the mm. Oxford uh, philosopher, Platonist philosopher, right. um, noted in one of her works. 
um, she was talking about sort of the, the, the arrogance of modern humanity and the way in which they basically, you know, the Promethean self, um, right. the self-assertedness. She goes through this whole list of what this, this, the characteristics of this modern human. And many of those characteristics, when you read it, because we're moderns, we're like, yeah, yeah, this is great, this is great. And she right, goes, well, right. this is, you know, this is such and such, this is such and such, this is Kantian man. And then she goes, this is Lucifer, mm. the one who had fallen. Yeah, right, right. Um, she made the connection between the arrogance that is somewhat hidden in the humility of placing limits on pure reason, um, is that hidden under that was sort of an arrogance because it was closing off the doors to transcendence yeah. and the grounding of the human and our reason and our whole being in the world in yeah. God. And so if, you know, if anyone is kind of doubting that picture of Immanuel Kant, in, in the theological world, many people will, especially sort of... Uh, modern um, liberal theologians. Right. I think Kant was the, one of the big figures that gave them their whole parad paradigm for carrying out the liberal theological project, but also what is called mediating theologians. These were the ones who they wanted to, they didn't want to take the whole enlightenment vision, um, but they did want it to allow the, to ask the questions and to which Christianity and its symbols would sort of provide the answers. But uh, this is a quote from Immanuel Kant, and uh, I'm not going to go through all the background on it. I'm just going to give the quote for now. This is uh, when he talks about what is, what is the goal of the Enlightenment. He says, only in light of this change can the human duty to realize or promote the highest good become meaningful. The highest good is our own world brought to perfection. It is not the transcendent world of God, but like the given world, it has temporal existence and empirical constituents. Our duty is to promote the highest good. This no longer means that a person should make himself good, but he should also be making the world good. Hmm. And so what we have is a, you know, it's what the, this chapter in, in um, Gordon Michelson's book is called Heaven Comes to Earth. Hmm. But it's what, Tillich is calling basically a judgment. Right. A judgment in which humanity is starting to become self-enclosed. Mm. And um, I think this has set the conditions um, in which um, in the West and continued in the West, even though there's a breaking down of this, mm -hmm. this kind of vision, um, to set the, set the ground rules right. for uh, anything we say and do. Right. So you can't say that because these rules are in place, place. that presume or sort of establish sort of this horizontal plane in which we have to think and, and, and pursue our understanding of the good. Yeah, and so the question is, um, you know, just I guess from, from, from a point of theological analysis, is what do we think about that in Tilika's point that this is a form of judgment? Yeah. I mean, some would see this as a new enlightenment. It's a new emphasis on all these things that got left out of the, the Platonic Christian vision or the, the vision that kind of uh, placed so much on God that the earthly and the human were, were so subordinated mm -hmm. that they had no real dignity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I guess, um, you know, the idea that I noted earlier by saying hand it over, mm -hmm. you know, judgment, particularly in the New Testament, is sometimes put that way. 
yeah. got you know has handed them over. Yeah. So uh, the idea is that you know it, since we are dependent creatures, rational dependent creatures, that uh, our connection to transcendent things uh, not only is good and right, it's uh, in our own interests. Hmm. And so, uh, as we pursue our interests, hmm. as we misunderstand them, without a reference to things above, mm -hmm. the one who stands above everything says, fine, go ahead, do what you want. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But there's no way that we can bring about the fulfillment we long for without him. Hmm. So that's, that's kind of what comes, that's how I, I, I think about it, what you just described. Yeah. I just, the, the thought that came to me is the slippery slope that this leads to. Mm -hmm. That if you cut yourself off from the transcendent, you cut yourself off ultimately from a lot of other things that follow, inevitably. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you look at the, the uh, chaos in a lot of ways that's in our culture today, mm -hmm. it really goes back to this idea that there is no transcendent out there, that it is just us and that the, the phenomenal world, to use mm -hmm. Kantian terms, <coughs> is all that exists. You know, yeah. what we see, what we experience, the physical, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Except the physical world has no meaning. And right. therefore, you as an autonomous creature have the right to impose whatever meaning on it you want to because there is no transcendent out there to give it meaning. Mm -hmm. So all of these things flow from the loss of this, this concept of the transcendent. And I would argue it's fundamentally a judgment of God on our arrogance. And it's interesting because that's where the Luciferian point comes in. Mm -hmm. Because yep. Lucifer trying to exalt himself against the right. created givens and its right. place within it is such that wants to become the center point for defining good and evil and everything for himself because there isn't anything. This is what I mean by there being that kind of Luciferian yeah. um, spirit, if you will. One could put it this way, I'm gonna get probably some heat for this from certain yeah, yeah. eschatological people, but could we not say that the, this, the enlightenment in this, in this rebellious side, in its movement towards centering things in the human and right. in the creaturely, right. um, it is a parallel of the old Adam, but in a sense it's in the spirit of antichrist. And what I mean by that is historically Christ has now come. He's come for the first time, and Christianity and the gospel has gone into the world and impacted the world. So this is almost an Adam-like rebellion, a Luciferian rebellion, but it's not simply against the created moral order anymore, or the law, but against Christ. Hmm. And so what it does, though, is it, it takes the good stuff, as the Antichrist likes to do, comes as an yeah. angel of light, right. takes the good things that were given in Christianity, meaning, order, purpose, certain things of value, or, or at least their fulfillment in, in, in the Christian vision, um, and then steals some of that and tries to still hold that. This is what I mean by the next step, delusion. Right. And so people think that, for example, that, wow, I can be committed to progress and moral progress and equality in the world, but they don't have a transcendent ground anymore. It's completely grounded in the nihil, the nothing. Right, right. and where, yeah. that, where that leads pretty much immediately is that in, it, it leads you to 1984. I mean, yeah. you know, 
in the name of freedom, we are going to impose a series of laws on you that you must conform to, but we're going to do this in the name of freedom. In the name of, well, we're going to take the word love that everybody loves, yeah. and we are going to redefine it to suit our particular needs and our desires, because meaning is found in us, it's not found in anything else. So what, yeah. the, what you do is hmm. you cannibalize the language hmm. of Christianity, but infuse it with a totally different meaning. And see, that's what I'm kind of saying is in a sense, that's what I'm using the metaphor here for antichrist in the sense that it's exactly. taking Christian, but it's putting the anti-Christian within it. Right. And yeah. so, and, it, and it's deceptive because for many Christians who, who use that language and those concepts like freedom and concern for justice and equality, you know, all these things, the dignity of the human, even though fallen, but made in the image of, all these things, um, are carried along, but infused with 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 the the alternative vision, and so, in a sense, it can delude many to thinking, okay, I'm going to take up the cause of justice. I'm just going to jump on board, for example, with with the, the you know the secular movements or the leftist movements of justice. Never asking, first of all, what do we mean by justice? Yeah, right. Whether justice is to be achieved through these wholly imminent means, mm. or if we're not unleashing a set of forces right. that are, are, are um, damning, if not destructive, to, to human yeah. well-being right. and salvation. And this, I think, uh, gets to the problem of history. You know, history, um, I think, in the academy now, is a discipline that is at a loss for what it's supposed to do, mm -hmm. <laughs> for one thing, because you know, many historians, rather than just simply you know, helping us understand the past, are, is, are using the past to, to, to promote a particular understanding of justice or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, but you, know, you, you noted that many of these people are probably unable to explain. Not a, it's, not, it's not just so much that they, they've never even thought about it, yeah. it's, it's that even if they tried to think about it, they, they wouldn't be able to answer the question you asked, like, what yeah. do we mean by justice? Yeah. <laughs> they, you know, they, they live by cliches. Yeah. Uh, they live by you know, tweets or yeah. you know, whatever, you know, sort of the, what's in the air, you know, the yeah. zeitgeist. And, and there's, uh, so this, this amnesia, that's what I was getting at with yeah. history, this amnesia. Yeah. I mean, I can remember in the 90s we thought communism was finally behind us. Yeah. You mm -hmm. know, right? The yeah. end of history. Yeah, yeah. we thought, <laughs> at last we've gotten rid of that yeah. stupid idea. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's back. And it's anyone who's under the, you know the old saying, don't trust anyone over 30. I've got, yeah. you know, I reverse it. Don't trust anyone under 30. They're just, <laughs> they know nothing. <laughs> and, and they're not really interested in learning anything. Yeah. See, and the, and the problem is, I mean, fish don't know they're wet, and they can't even conceive of what being wet means. Well, yeah, mm -hmm. that gets and, into the... And, yeah. and that, that's our, sort of the core of it. The, the, all of these, they're... The world we're operating in, people are living in what they consider a completely self-evident set of givens right. that are anything but. Right. Yes. And they cannot conceive of That's... anything outside of that set of givens. Mm -hmm. So they, they don't know that they're wet. They don't know the intellectual world in which they're traveling, what the hidden assumptions are, where it leads what the implications yeah. are, where it came from, they're completely unaware of that. As far as they're concerned, this is just the way the world is, and they never consider 
the possibility that there's another way of understanding it. Is it possible to even call any of that into question without transcendence? It, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. th th fundamentally what we're dealing with is, is kind of my area of worldviews at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the question becomes, how do you, how do you challenge or change a worldview? Mm -hmm. And um, that's not the easiest question to answer. Yeah. Right. There are ways that you can create cracks in the facade, but that's about as far as you can reliably go. Right. right. Yeah. And, and we'll come back to that because I think with that last part, indifference, that's going to be one of the big, big mm -hmm. um, issues, I think, related related to this. Um, and you mentioned a moment ago that, for example, the way in which uh, meaningless is kind of lost. But oftentimes, and I think most of the time, I, mean, I, I work in universities and I work with young people who, yeah, they have a very fragmented life. They're working with different kind of sectors of meaning in the different kind of areas that they yeah, live right. in and out of. And so they're used to working with incoherence and holding contradictory views. But on the other hand, they would like to think when they present something that they're holding something together. Um, uh, Tilak in his book on nihilism, is, is, he has a great chapter called The Human Form of the World's Breakdown. You know, once the cosmos has kind of been, yeah. been is no longer a cosmos, what does the human form look like? And he's, he's using uh, Camus' the, the Plague mm. to kind of um, talk about it, and he talks about sort of um, one of the characters, uh, Oran or Oran, I don't know, O-R-A-N, I'm not sure. Yeah. Hopefully, because uh, he's, he analyzes, he says, Oran is a picture of the complete confusion of the world. Its phenomena can no longer be explained, for every explanation presupposes an order whose structure and coherence it is possible to discover and demonstrate. Mm. And a lot of people who kind of self-consciously um, want to assert the kind of absurdity of, of everything and that, that, you know, when Christians try to point to some kind of... Um, transcendent reference point, but also the way in which reason and explanation are grounded in that, we kind of get laughed off the map. You know, oh, there's no natural order that we can point to. There's right. no biological order that's binding. We want, we're, we're free of all that. We're the one that imposes a meaning. And yet any attempt they make to, to, to bring coherence to any of their arguments or positions is borrowing off, and we've, you know, sure. this comes out of any apologetic systems, borrowing off the capital of Christianity. But here's the point. The, the older existentialists like Camus would laugh at those people. Mm. Let's say you're, mm. basically, you're, you're basically taking a Christian conception of coherence, rationality, and order. The real nihilist or the, the real bold, um, you know, the, the person of, of at least consistency, if, if that right. even matters in this world, is the one who embraces this fate, this nihil, and, uh, you know, kind of takes it as their kind of heroic stance to, to do whatever it wants or choose what it will in light of that otherwise endless right. hopelessness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The interesting thing is if you uh, read continental atheists as opposed to British atheists, yeah. They regularly accuse the British atheists of being Christian atheists <laughs> because they are importing yeah. so much Christian morality, particularly in ethics, into what they're doing. Right. And that's exactly the kind of thing you're talking about here. It's the borrowed capital idea. And I think we see that also in the, the way in which um, the, certain, the, the, the type of liberalism that took hold of you know, American culture 
Um, its first step was one that I think many Christians can be okay with because it still holds a strong sense of the Judeo-Christian ethic and its, its formative influence on law and you know, on the modern picture that developed. Um, but because it was already one remove as it tried to move that into a, 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 a sort of political and social philosophy, um, one step away from its, its theological grounding, it started to set up the next phase, which was the step at which it started to question that Judeo-Christian heritage in which those tensions came in. But most of our language, or even if you watch like political debates here, I mean, they, they basically function like an evangelical revival yeah, rally, yeah, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you hit the, the religious talking points or buzzwords and people get into a fervor. Yeah. Um, you say the thing about the enemy and everyone is stirred to, um, you know, almost a frenzy, frenzy point, <laughs> you know? and they're revived to go right. vote. Um, but, but you have, for example, the, this lingering notion of progress, and you still continue leaning forward the right side of history. It's, it's for people that, in all of their university years, the people that usually come out with those positions are fully aware that they're full of it when they're using that language. <laughs> but it's the fact that you can have people even continue to think that that... Right. I mean, the only way that works is the conditioning, cultural conditioning from the older terms, mm -hmm. and they've already been, you know, uh, what is it, what, what is the point, was it Rorty or one of them, which they basically become emptied out, mm -hmm. and then, then they're just used All right. well, let, psychologically. Let, yeah, let, let, let's go back to the, the loss of meaning. Yeah. If there is no transcendent, there is no meaning, language becomes an arbitrary game, basically. Yeah. And because of language's effect on culture, it becomes a tool to create culture, or to put it differently, a tool of cultural power. So what you do is you manipulate the language, you manipulate the symbols um, and the language in order to control, in order to direct society in the way you want it to go, in order to incarnate your vision of what the world ought to be like and language is a principal tool for doing, doing it. That, yeah. uh, there's a linguistic theory called the superior wharf hypothesis that mm. says that uh, language shapes thought not the other way around yeah mm -hmm. yeah and basically what you're seeing with a lot of the pc stuff and with yeah. the kinds of things you're talking about right. here is i think a very self-conscious attempt to use language to create cultural realities. And since there is no transcendent meaning, cultural reality is the only reality. Right. I think, uh, you know, you described the water. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, when I think about many of our listeners who perhaps haven't had much time in academe or uh, haven't had an opportunity to read Tilica, <laughs> <laughs> <That's right. laughs> you know, uh, or are people at, you know, that level they more or less uh, are a certain sort of person who is in the water and unaware of it, but maybe for different reasons have managed or are, are the sort of the, the inheritors of a kind of sentiment uh, within our larger culture. Maybe it's, because, maybe it's because they grew up in an intact family. Hmm. Maybe it's because they had a grandfather who was a pastor and they liked him a lot. Maybe it was because uh, their own family life fell apart and they went in search of something solid. Hmm. These people 
uh, are the people who are in many of our Reformed churches. You know, they're, they're the people, but at the same time, they, they have a sense of what's, that there's something crazy going on here. Mm -hmm. But they're not really sure, you know, how to talk about it, how to describe it. They'll use the, the, the sort of the monikers that we've, mm. they've been given by people like Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, political correctness and da-da-da-da. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they really don't have an understanding of kind of the, 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 the sources of this stuff, where, where it comes from. Uh, and it's not easy. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say that they... Sh they, they they should because it's obvious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, this stuff requires a lot of hard work to unearth and it does. to to so that you can examine it. Yeah, but once you once you get there, you realize another thing that's sort of disconcerting is that some of the things that these that are that our mm. Christian brothers and sisters in our churches, our people that we love and care about, share with our enemies, actually is a big problem. Yeah, and that's that has been, you know, you know. I guess you can go in a lot of different directions on what's to blame and the limits of good discipleship and right. the, the, you know, the kind of removal of theological and worldview education in the church and the promotion of entertainment and prag, you know, yeah. practical this worldly. We got to pay the mortgage. Yeah, we got to get right. those people in here. And, right. and you actually have to go back further than yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, to the early 20th century for the yeah. roots of a lot. I think a lot of the problems we're facing now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in Christian history, and especially in evangelical history, yeah. one of the core characteristics of evangelicalism from its start, British evangelicalism, was the idea that the gospel needs to be translated into social action. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. okay. That was a core commitment. In the early 20th century, the liberals in America, it actually started earlier in Europe, but the liberals in America um, started emphasizing the social gospel. It was all about translating things into social action. And they completely ignored evangelism. They dropped it, largely because of the influence of the Enlightenment. Yeah. The conservatives, for their part, said, no, 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 the social gospel isn't the gospel, evangelism is. So they went to the other extreme and emphasized evangelism to the exclusion of the social action thereby creating a, a, a bifurcation within the gospel that was never meant to be there. And the problem that we're facing now in a lot of, um, you know, progressive evangelicals or even the Southern Baptist Convention, these kinds of things, is people are realizing that the gospel is more than evangelism, but they've lost the vocabulary and the framework to understand how to think of it in kingdom terms. So what they do is they look at the injustices in society, which are real, mm -hmm. and they grab onto the only thing that they have to make sense of them, which is things like critical race theory and, and feminist theology and those kinds of things, which are anything but a true kingdom vision. And I think what those, those theories have done is they have kind of filled a vacuum that's one thing, right. because these, these arenas are not being addressed because of the limits of the, the, especially the theological vision. I'm not trying to blame everything on theology or the limits of the church. I understand it's, it's mm -hmm. societal sure. limits and all of that. But I do mean, what I do mean to say is that 
there's something left wide open that makes it attractive for someone who, who grows up and is formed in the church, for example, to be drawn to that at a certain point. Now, one could be just they don't have the resources and know how to deal with it. I remember going to university the first time, and these ideas come from all these challenging places, and I'm like, wait a minute. I've never thought of this. Oh, maybe these people have a case. So right. in my case, it was, okay, let me study harder. Right. I didn't just, you know, oh, this has got to be it and go back and kind of swing the sword back at the church. I said, wait a minute, let's see what resources are here to, to kind of evaluate the other side. I mean, those right. are kind of things you come up with. And of course, I, I entered in the university from a different place. I was someone who was, right. was very open to all these other ideas and I actually right. saw that uh, they, were, they were trying too hard yeah. To, to, to get rid of that which was supposed to be so obviously um, false, you right, know, Christianity. Right. Um, but yeah, you have that, but, but this stuff seeps in, um, and I think it seeps in again because on the one hand, we're people that live in, you know, in, in the same societies, and, and no matter how much you shut the doors to some things, everything, every advertisement, every, right. uh, it, it's just seeping in, this, this view of humanity. I know people that, you know, completely homeschooled and everything else who ended up becoming fully Kantian people. Yeah, and and right. even and kind of living, you know, without, without any difference, sort of, than sort of their liberal counterpart. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's a very real thing. Um, but on the other hand, I do think these things get masked because that the encroachment of the, those concepts being filled with new meanings has been just gradual enough yeah, right. to where we're not fully aware that, you know, unless we're really paying attention to the shifts of cultural ideas. I mean, now we're starting to see, like you mentioned, the, the, the frictions that are developing and the polarities because some of these things are starting to come to bubble in the culture. They are starting to come to a fever pitch, the, right. the different ideas that are behind. I mean, if you can see within what used to be two sides of a certain, you know, American liberalism, the conservatives and, the, you know, the, the classic or cultural liberals, um, they still shared so much of the Enlightenment unit unified vision right. that they were able to to not be at such extremes well now because that has fragmented um and again you know i, I think it was a it, francis schaefer used to say now the 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 bridge is because the, the the bridge is too weak for the trucks to go over the enlightenment mm -hmm. vision is showing its its weakness because it wasn't grounded in a transcendent reality mm -hmm. but in a sentimental humanism so because of that that bridge has is collapsing and they don't know what to fill it with, so they're running to the, you know, their polarities and, and their, what they would consider their distinguishing marks, and that becomes the point of cultural tension. And so I think even with conservatives, politically in the culture, but more so in the church, right now it's more of a sentimental relationship yes. to those things than it yeah. is an awareness mm -hmm. of exactly what's wrong. There's an intuition yeah. there, right. but it's more tied to, I think, sentiment than, than a theological analysis. And, right. and well, this reminds me of the denomination that I used to belong to. I, I, it's, it's, it's made up of many sort of uh, what I would call knee-jerk conservative people. In other words, their sentiments yeah. are, are what govern their, their approach to social issues or whatever. Yeah. And those sentiments were formed in kind of a Norman Rockwell America. Yeah. And, uh, and they're great people. I mean, yeah. they're, they're fine people, but, but they're, they're, in this particular denomination, their theology actually belies their sort of social conservatism. Their theology actually is more s sort of friendly or uh, accommodating to the kinds of s 
stuff that you've been describing with with the Enlightenment and yeah. sort of progressivism and, and so forth. And it occurred to me, oh, maybe 20 years ago, that it was only a matter of time for the older folks to die off. Mm-hmm. The folks who, you know, during hymn request night at, on Sunday evenings would ask for things like, you know, Amazing Grace or In the Garden. They're all gone now. <laughs> and so all you have left now are their kids and their grandkids, and they don't have that kind of experience of, of yeah. America, you know, that they're grandparents had yeah you know that wasn't a per obviously there were problems with that but but one of the th- this is again kind of gets at uh, uh, an inability for us to make good distinctions yeah there were large swaths of the of those lives that were very praiseworthy yeah yes they had some some things that they had mm-hmm. you know that we can condemn them for yeah but we almost inverted the situation now where young people today, large swaths of their lives have nothing to praise. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. just nothing to them. Yeah. Yeah. And what they hold up as praiseworthy is something they can tweet or something something yeah. ephemeral or something, yeah. I'm on the right side, this kind yeah. of stuff. <laughs> yeah. See, what I found interesting yeah. is that Tilaki went mm-hmm. to the existentialists. And yeah. I've, I've always described existentialism as nihilism light. Yeah. L-I-T-E. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right, right. Um, because it, 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 in essence, what the nihilist says is that in order to live a, an authentic life, you mm-hmm. have to realize that life is absurd, it is meaningless, and you have to create meaning for yourself. In essence, in Nietzschean terms, you have to become your own ubermensch. Yeah. And the thing about that that I found intriguing there is that if you lose transcendence, the only thing that is really left is for you to become your own ubermatch. Ultimately, it's got to come down to solipsism, to you creating your own meaning for yourself. And this is what we see all over the place, except of course everybody is buying into the ideology that says you can create your own meaning for your, your own identity. For yourself, right? If we, if we had if we had a, a truly diverse society, there'd be people walking around dressed like Aztecs. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, yeah. in, in other words, <laughs> in other words, we, we'd really be. You yeah. know, but, but it's not. It's very conformist. Society. And you wouldn't be self-conscious of it. That's yeah. the other thing. This is what they. This right. is what they can't go back on. Is the Enlightenment buffer has now created it so that you're the fabricator of your diversity now. Yeah. So yeah. it isn't diversity. It's already conformity to the Enlightenment view. Mm-hmm. Little do. Most social justice people who become socially aware and socially conscious, able to stand back from culture, time, and place to evaluate the injustices, that's the byproduct of white European liberal yeah. conceptions of right. the self. That yeah. doesn't come from immersion within a society. In a, in a way, you could say that the, the current situation is a, is a diabolical and ingenious yes. enculturation machine. So like when I lived yes. back in Cambridge 20 years ago, yeah. One of the things I noted is that people who, who were really old, who, who had grown up in an earlier America, were very different from each other. Yeah. You know, uh, black folks and white folks uh, really did have different ways of looking at the world. That, but what I, what I saw in the 90s was that in, within the environment of Cambridge, this great homogenization yeah. was occurring in the name of diversity. Yeah. So you had people who maybe had different skin color, but they each had piercings in their nipples, 
Or they, they all had, read they, the same They all read books. the same stuff. <laughs> as they all ate the same foods. They yeah. all drank the same coffee. Yeah. You know, they all had the same political views. You know, yeah. it was ingenious, and it was diabolical, yeah. and it was an homogenizer, mm. you know, this well, whole thing. And this is, this is, this, you know, raises some, I guess you could call them the... The ironies within yeah. the 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 modern postmodern interplay um, is that kind of thing. It it all has to already work from the assumptions given. See, what's interesting is postmodernity is kind of doing to modernity what modernity did to Christianity. Right, right. And postmodernity gets anything like justice or any of these other things very far down the line. Yeah. And so it's it's um, so it's really an odd kind of odd thing because it's much more difficult to. Um, to know how to go, for, to enter into a place in which there is so much fragmentation. Um, th but, um, but is it fragmented? I see, a, as, as, yeah. like Chris was saying, I see a huge amount of unanimity in outlook. They're basically, yeah. in, in my experience in colleges right now, there are basically yeah. two worldviews in operation. And that's it. Yeah, I think you're right. Maybe I didn't clarify that the best way. The fragmentation is a surface fragmentation. It's what people think is the case. Therefore, you can't appeal to the old givens. Mm -hmm. For example, a, a, you know, a classical liberal, you could sit down and start to talk about certain things from you know, created order, law, justice, right, that had at least a shared, you can do this in some cases and not, but I've encountered people who, who have no, I mean, they don't mind having a completely irrational, incoherent set of concepts that even, even with their own argument. So long as they're in harmony. So long as they're... With, with yeah. what they perceive to yeah. be the powers that be. Be. And so, what, yeah, it's an intensification of, of what I would think the, the self-enclosed um, consequences of the, the, of the Enlightenment. Um, so rebellion, if we could yeah. use that term. And again, whatever good came out of the Enlightenment, um, in terms of you know, in terms of the sciences and the goods of technology and all these things, I think were not the result of right. um, what is bad about it. I think they were the result of the intensification of focus on things that Christianity had implicit, and right. they were able to be given um, heightened um, concentration because of you know the particular perspective. Now there could always be a question of would some of these things have come about if there wasn't. Uh, and well, then, actually, yeah. we can answer that question. Yeah. If, in the absence of Christianity, science does not develop. That's right. Modern science. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. modern science is based on a number of fundamental assumptions. Yeah. <clears throat> well, if you read the, the people in the scientific revolution, mm -hmm. God is the creator, God is rational, Therefore, the universe is rational. Mm -hmm. Human beings are made in the image of God, and while we're not perfectly rational, we're at least somewhat rational, which means that we can look at the universe and understand the rationality behind it. Mm -hmm. Or as Kepler put it, we can think God's thoughts after him. If you lose those base assumptions, mm -hmm. there is no logical, coherent foundation for science. If the universe just sort of explodes into existence and everything is then a product of mm -hmm. the laws of physics or random chance, mm -hmm. then there is no reason to assume the universe is understandable or that we are, if it is understandable, that we're capable of understanding it. Mm. It, it's only these base assumptions that made science possible, which is why it develops in the West, in the Christian West specifically, yeah. 
And right now, I would argue that, the, that an atheist scientist has his feet firmly planted in midair. He does not have a foundation to do what he's doing. You well, do with Christianity. Yeah, you know, it's sort of play on that. My, my question is, or my, you know, it's sort of the question that arises in my mind in relationship to both, what both of you have said, is does science have a future? Now, that seems so absurd because mm -hmm. to, to even ask the question, makes it almost sounds like I live in a closet, yeah. you know, and yet, you know, we look around. Oh, you're this, about to write a sci-fi. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a Mac Pro here, a Mac Air right here, yeah. you know, we're, we're enjoying, you know, sort of incandescent light that's been, <laughs> Don't you know, confuse science and technology. Oh, I, I don't, but, but yeah. this is my point, is that, is that, you know, do we have, have you know, do we have uh, conditions that have momentum with this kind of irrationality, with this, with this sort of, uh, inability to, to affirm, you know, the sort of the, the coherence and orderliness of things mm -hmm. metaphysically. Have we created a situation in which maybe a hundred years from now it, it would be hard for us to justify the scientific endeavor? Yeah. Uh, I think the only thing, in fact, I, my, my conviction is the only thing that justifies it in the minds of many people is, tech, is technology. Right. Yeah. I don't think that people are naturally curious. I don't mm -hmm. think they really give a rip what goes on in the black hole in two, two galaxies yeah. away, except yeah. for maybe what it might add to a science fiction story. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't think that they really, 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 really care. Yeah. I think what they care about is maybe an <coughs> asteroid hitting the Earth, yeah. and maybe science will help us yeah. s lick that problem. Yeah. But they're not really curious about tr you know, knowing the, tr the nature of things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and is it enough yeah. to, to have a, a purely you know, utilitarian instrumentalist approach to science to keep science going. It's interesting because I was reading an essay by the, the former Pope, Benedict uh, Ratzinger, right. where he was addressing that very issue. And in issue. the mind of many Catholics, still the Pope. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we They're wondering why he, he stepped, you know, why he went right. to write in the, right. you know. Right. Right. <laughs> but, um, but he was talking about that very thing. He was talking about the limits, uh, the, the strengths, but also the limits and weakness of, you know, scientific rationality. Of course, he went through the whole notion about it has its roots, of course, in the, in the, the consequences of having a genuine, real creation, and therefore in the submitting to it in, in some sense to learn it, to know it, to understand it, and how that it needs the complement actually of faith's knowledge to actually, tra the transcendental reference as we've been talking about, in order to have a vision that doesn't move towards its, its end or, or, you know. Well, think, think about it this way. There are people right now who are rejecting science. Yeah. I'm not talking about the flat earthers or even yeah. the young earthers. I'm thinking about people <laughs> who are rejecting science as it, as it relates to, to sexual yeah. reality, who for no other reason reject science than it doesn't serve the, the thing that I want to mm. see occur. So they could almost go by the no-earthers in the sense that there isn't a reality there that in well, any sense. That's it. So, so these people are actually anti-science because it lacks the utility yeah. or it denies. I'm all set. Done. Just, just, yeah, to go. Do you want like, what do you want? With the, with the fries and the. Do you want cheese? Like a cheese? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Medium. Medium? Yeah. All right. So anyway. I'm probably we, gonna be having dinner here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, everyone in the podcast world knows oh, yeah, what yeah. Tom's son is eating for dinner <laughs> That's tonight. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, but. So, so the, the thing that justifies science socially is its utility. Yeah. But 
for a particular segment of people, feminists, you know, they'll actually say, don't study that. Don't study the differences between men and women. Yeah. Or we don't want to know. Yeah. Because yeah. we want people to be free to pursue their own vision. Yeah. Uh, and the consequences, you know, do have some social implications. For example, in the military, we have just got, you know, because of these trans, these, these things that have occurred in our culture, we got people playing fantasy. You know, they're 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 yeah. playing, they're sort of living out their fantasies. Remember Fantasy Island? Yeah. You know, Ricardo Montalban and uh, you know, <laughs> de plane, de plane, de plane. <laughs> That's where many of these people live. I mean, yeah. they they, they, well, they yeah. and, they, and they're, they're they're in the United States Army and and they're. They're running the the Rangers, and they're they're playing with, and they're adjusting the. the yeah. That's my point. That's my point. They're so, adjusting things we, to get the results we, they want, rather than keeping the. And they're and they're denying the, the science. They're yeah. also denying the science. And, it, yeah. and again, this is a weird. It's a weird irony because, in the sense, they're social engineering, which is a byproduct of the, that enlightenment. The human being can right. use technology right. to serve its ends, but on the other hand, it's undermining its authority in a sense. Right. Well, the, right. you know, have you ever considered the fact that with all of the genders people think are out there, transgenders always want to be male or female? Right, right. Yeah. Well, we, and had, they, we, had we, had do, we do surgery to make them male or female, but yeah. there are 60-something genders according to Facebook. We had a little what? experience with that this past Sunday, I want you to know. We had, a we had a transsexual come into church afterwards to hit me up for money. But anyway, yeah. Tom was there and yeah. witnessed it. Yeah, yeah. It was <laughs> an interesting show. way to end the, the service. <laughs> yeah, 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 he was a freaky dude. <laughs> He was from Oregon, so anybody from Oregon listening. Driving a white Cadillac. <laughs> That's right, white Cadillac Escalade. <laughs> Keep an eye out for that guy. He's blonde, tall, wears ruby red lipstick. <laughs> he's driving a Cadillac Escalade and he's trying to hit you up for cash. That's what, that's, yeah, it, again, it was, another one of those ironies. <laughs> right. Yeah, there were all sorts of things that were, that were contradictory in this guy's life. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway. Despite what the dialectical theologians held, contradiction is not the hallmark of truth. <laughs> yeah, but... Uh, yeah, so I mean, I think summing up a lot of that, you know, a lot of what it was up to is I think there are a lot of issues that continue to plague, the, you know, our way of analyzing culture, in, uh, you know, theologically, that um, require a lot of this unmasking, um, but also really asking the question, was this a sort of judgment? Yeah, uh, well, I think that's a great way to look at it. Because there is a rejection of a lot of classical, historic, biblical teaching that went into the construction of, of an alternative view of humanity that took, again, a lot of the good things about uh, that the Christian vision gave, but then filled them with new and meaning that was uh, in fundamental conflict with the historic meaning because it was not grounded in, in God and all things in relation to God, but it was grounded in the hu fallen human creature. Right. And that becomes the, the, you know, the feet planted in midair. And so I guess the follow, you know, that what I mean um, when I get down to the end is, is the nihilistic, I guess, yeah, I mean, fragmenting isn't the good way of putting it. But what I, I think I'm after with that is, is Nihilism, a lot will argue, is the, the real picture of Kantian humanity um, when you pull back its dress, you know, yeah. it's being dressed in Christian garb. 
Right. Once mm -hmm. you take off the, the Christian humanism that cloaks it, there isn't the transcendent God there, mm -hmm. but there is merely a human subject, but a human subject detached from the Creator is nihil, is nothing. Right. It has right. no image. Um, and therefore, we're dealing back with Lucifer, I would imagine. Um, mm -hmm. So that's the takeaway today. Yeah, well, that's, that's, <laughs> that's really you know, significant uh, stuff that you've presented to us. And it gets my mind working in some directions that are kind of, you know, could take us far afield. For example, you know, if we think about God handing us over to our own devices and... Uh, you know, sort of uh, pulling back, uh, you know, even, you know, his direct intervention in the world in certain respects. I'm thinking about miracles and so forth. Hmm. Um, you know, we, ha we have this, uh, an argument, you know, we have a series of arguments that are often made against miracles hmm. that uh, I think are category errors. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the miracle, first of all, by its by its nature is something that's not predictable. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> and it, does, it can happen anytime, and yeah. it doesn't have to happen. So you could have like thousands of years without it happening. Yeah. But that's what it means to be a miracle, to have a miracle yeah. is something that's not necessary. It's, yeah. it's from outside, yeah. it's something coming from outside. But the, the, the critics of the miraculous are all arguing for, you know, sort of the inner consistency of the, the mm -hmm. you know, world that we live in, you know, this this imminent, uh, uh, you know, the imminent frame, as you, That's you say. Right. Yeah. So, so, of course, within that, they're impossible. That's right. They're and not, they don't seem reasonable. And they look very strange, even in the sort of evangelical apolog <coughs> apologetic approaches that really try to show. I'll bring the burger when it's ready, okay? Okay, thank you. Sounds good, thanks. thanks. Um, even when, when you have um, a lot of sort of these empiricist approaches or factual approaches or to show that, you know, basically uh, modern visions of science are consistent with, you know, our theological worldview, you start talking miracles, they just sound very funny. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you know the, these certain things happening in the same world in which we are familiar with just because. And so, yeah, I think there is a, there, there is a real strong need to recapture the biblical understanding teaching of right. the miraculous. So, kind, of, kind of what I'm getting at is, yeah. you know, like what I think C.S. Lewis was getting at in his uh, Pilgrim's Regress. Yeah. You know, there's, from the, from the standpoint of what is reasonable, yeah. it all depends on what is real. Yeah. You know, what is reasonable yeah. relates to what is real. So if there really is a transcendent realm, you know, miracles are reasonable. Yeah. You know, but if you are, you know, limiting your understanding of reason to the imminent frame, then they seem to be a violation of reason. That's right. Now, if God has handed us over to our own devices, yeah. that would also sort of include, I think, you yeah. know, the miraculous. Yeah. And uh, now that's not to say that, you know, God isn't doing miraculous things, you know, right. but maybe sure. he's picking on Europe. <laughs> yeah. I you know, and withholding his hand. Yeah. yeah. You know, the. You know, I, I think about this whole thing on miracles in, in a couple of different ways, but one of them would be, imagine if someone in the middle of Siberia decided he wanted to prove my existence. Mm -hmm. He could go on Facebook and find my profile, but how does he know that that's a real profile? You know, maybe it's a forgery. 
You know, maybe someone is just making believe that I exist. He could go on Amazon and find books I've written. Well, maybe they're by a pseudonym and really written by somebody else. I mean, you know, there are any number of ways you can introduce doubt into this thing. The only way to really change it is if I show up and knock on his door and say, yeah, this is me. Okay. So when you're dealing with issues of miracle, one of the things you have to keep in mind is that God has a free will. Yeah. Um, and so he may or may not choose to, to act. And yet, they, and yet the people who oppose miracles say, well, you know, we never see them happening, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and when they do see something that they can't explain, they say it's a God in the gaps. Right. So mm-hmm. what, what they do is they sort of a priori reject it, right. then claim there's no evidence, and if evidence does in fact show up, they explain it away, a bunch like you could explain away my existence. Right, right. You really are Glenn Sunshine, aren't you? <laughs> Last time I checked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, I'm with you. I follow that line of thought and, uh, completely. And I think when one really, especially when one um, starts to, to engage just the, the nature of reality and start to push the nature of existence and everything back to the kinds of possible explanations there are. And one realizes with the Christian vision that all things at this very moment are miraculously held together. Right, right. Mir- miracle is actually in continuity with, the, with, with well, created right. reality in its yeah. first act. So what you have with a miracle is really a reenactment of God's ability to yeah. ex nihilo. Yeah, so it, it's, it's, exactly it's right. probably the most, I like that. most rational. Yeah. The yeah. fact is, why are there not less? And I, would, I think we could also argue, you know, they're, they're probably, again, they're things related to God's distinct new acts and his purposes. Right. Um, and providence also is a, another thing that, that right. there are things happening and coming together at all moments um, under under its guidance and care. But uh, but those are you know other big topics. But I do think that there isn't from the get go when one understands the nature of right. existence and yeah all the way down right this right. very moment. It's yeah, not Bundle Berry has a little book, uh, Life Is a Miracle. Is that, yeah. yeah I think. Well, yeah, I, I was listening to John Lennox. He was at the Wilberforce weekend um, last May, and he was pointing out some things that I, frankly, didn't really know from the realm of physics. He said, look, you know, we talk all about energy, and we've got laws that describe how energy works, but we don't know what energy is. Hmm. And he gave example after example of these things that we work with all the time. Well, scientists work with, physicists work right. with all the time. And he says, you know, we know what it does, we don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the same thing I would argue is true for life itself. Right, right. Um, you know, so th- this is, yeah. you know, this is another sort of example of that. And what those things point to, again, is not a God of the gap, it's the openness of the creation because it isn't a self-explaining reality. Right. right. And that it's openness to transcendence, to be what it is. And, and so that, that automatically has the door open to the, the enactment of God within God's own created creation. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's open to God from the get-go. I mean, you have resistance with sin. But again, even that is something that's been overcome in Christ. And, and so you, you see the ability for now for, for apostles right, right, <laughs> you know, yeah. in his name. Right. Well, that's a good place to wrap things up. We've gotten yeah. to the point where we should probably wrap things up. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, do you have anything you want to say in conclusion there, Glenn? 
No, interesting conversation. Thanks, yeah, Tom. Yeah. yeah. You want anything else, Tom? No, to? no. There were just some things that were on my mind as I was reading yeah, through yeah. some books. Thought they right. were worth sharing. Yeah, they, they were. Anyway, uh, I don't have anything more to add. So uh, thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks.